Frederick Toutain grew up in the Bronx. At 15, he dropped out of high school with aspirations to become a painter and live in Paris. He took odd jobs and eventually went back to school, earning a PhD from NYU. He traveled through Latin and South America, studied mural painting at the University of Mexico, and wrote about Brazilian cinema novo. He taught at the University of Paris, acted in a short film by Alan René, co-wrote the film Possession, and conducted summer writing workshops with Paul Bowles and Tangier. The recipient of many awards for his writing, Toutain's short stories, art and film criticisms, have appeared in Art Forum, The New York Times, Vogue, Granta, and other publications. He has written about artists including John Baldessari, Eric Fiskel, Pierre Huyghe, David Saleh, and Roy Lichtenstein. His books include The Adventures of Mao on the Long March, Tantan in the New World, The Green Hour, Van Gogh's Bad Café, Self-Portraits, Fictions, and most recently, his memoir, My Young Life. I'm Amanda Saletti, an associate podcast producer and interviewer for the creative process. I'm senior at the University of South Carolina, and I study visual communications. In Mia's interview, one of the main points was Frederick expressing his feelings about his desire to tell his story now, as it has been a lingering thought of his for a while. He touches on love, the importance of friendships and family, and his culture and background. Frederick said he learned worldliness and kindness from his family and he felt moved by French paintings and literature, which he still keeps close to his heart. His love for Europe influenced him so greatly that he actually moved to France as a teen, and that sounds like something from a film to me. I felt kind of nostalgic when he spoke of this because I reflected on my time studying in Florence, Italy. I really miss the city and all of its beautiful architecture, the amazing food, museums, and fashion. I made great friendships there that I wouldn't have if I didn't take the leap to study there. I didn't know anyone and I was all alone, so sometimes you have to take the first step, you know? Like one day I was sitting in class and our professor hadn't arrived yet. I was kind of eavesdropping on people's conversations and I heard these two girls speaking French behind me, so immediately, without having the thought of sounding creepy or invasive, I was like, Je parle français aussi, or <laughs> in English, I speak French too. And I mean, if I didn't find the will to say that, I wouldn't have made these two special friendships with whom I still keep in touch with. And now that I'm looking back, I'm just super glad I stuck with French class through college. Like how Frederick said, no one learns language anymore. No one in the US is really forced to practice another language or another country's culture. And even so, my French friends and my Italian friends were fluent in three or four languages. Meanwhile, sometimes English is tough for us, you know? I feel so lucky to have traveled in Europe and experienced and appreciate other cultures. There was something truly refreshing about Europe. Everyone wasn't so wrapped up in pop culture and social media and things like that, like we completely are in the US. So Frederick's values of language and culture really stuck with me. I really admired Frederick's curiosity about how we can make art that is exciting, his desire to create something unexpected and unusual. 
to go deeper and to veer from the norm is really inspiring. And uh, just as popular television series, how they draw you in and compel you to binge for hours, art should do the same. That's a large factor for me right now, whether I'm creating projects for school or on personal time. Everyone wants to stand out and to be different or special, and as artists, I feel like we all draw inspiration from each other. All art really is, in my opinion, is different interpretations collected and collaborating and influencing those ideas into your art. It's really like a recycling process, in other words. And personally, right now, I'm upgrading my resume and building my portfolio, so that's what's always in the back of my mind. How can I make something that's truly different? And whether it's in regard to my graphic designs or photography or drawings, the same concept follows each. I think most art students and artists in general feel this way or can largely relate. Let's welcome Frederick Tuton to the creative process. Hi, Amanda. So I listened to your interlude and your introductions, um, um, the, the entirety of them, because I hadn't seen them before when I just sent that just joining us. And I found it so moving and perceptive, and you really got to the core of what he was sharing and how you related it to your own experiences and being open to absorbing new experiences and culture and recycling um, you know, art as a process of recycling. I think that this really very well relates to what he was sharing and, and also, you know, what, what art is, is making, uh, allowing us to see things through uh, new eyes and, and through our conversations with others. So I just wanted to thank you for that because I hadn't, for some reason, I hadn't seen that in, in the folder before I sent the other. And so I'm looking, it's really impressive, so I'm looking forward to hearing it when it's in the, the body of the interview. I guess you're, you're editing and you're waiting for my just joining us segue, which was so late, so I'm so sorry about that. But I really love that. And I also have, uh, as you, I have a, also a fond feelings about um, Florence as well, where I, I learned some painting. So I have, a, you expressed that very well. Um, so, so well done. I just make this a bit short. So do you have some feedback and we can, uh, of course, have a video chat whenever is is a, a bit uh, good for you but we have a difference um wishing you a good weekend and looking forward to to hearing the entirety of that podcast so we will upload it and share it and um and then uh, yeah, it's, it's a collaboration with me as well i add my artwork that i did of uh, frederick tudor and uh so but when you if you can upload the texts of the interlude that you wrote um, into the folder with Frederick Tudin. That way I can put that, uh, the text of it online uh, next to the piece we, we've, we're just publishing on you now um, so that it can be read as well as listened to as podcast. Uh, thanks so much, Amanda Jane. Bye now. In reading over your body of work, 
uh, new works like Adventures of Mao and the Long March, Talien, Tantan in the New World, they've taken in so many uh, political and historical periods and often shuttle between past and present. Um, it's been very focused outward, although I know it has had autobiographical elements. Uh, why did you choose now to write your memoirs and what kind of conversations did you have with yourself in order to do it? Well, I I think it's time to say what I have to say about my life and what mattered to me in it and with whom I shared it. And um, I think people were very surprised, the publishers were very surprised. They thought that I was going to talk about kind of well-known people in my life, uh, artists and painters and poets. And I didn't, I mean, because the book takes place only between 1946 uh, uh, to 1964. So it's, I hope, part of an art project. I hope I have enough energy and time left to further it and to say more about uh, years and things about afterward. But in the beginning, I thought I have to say some things about my childhood. I usually deplore that. I usually deplore childhood memories as sort of saccharine and... Uh, uh, I, I, I shun it. I, sh I shunned that in my first novel. I didn't want to write an autobiographical novel, which many people do. I thought that was kind of, uh, how do I say it, uh, cheap. Uh, so I didn't want to do this for a very long time. But then I thought, not just for myself, people in my life who have vanished and who are noteworthy in life. And I don't mean famous. I mean who gave a great deal to life, who were interesting in life and maybe have vanished because they were not famous. There's no, no, there's no footnote in history for them. There's no place in history for them. But they were valiant and wonderful people, including my grandmother, my, my, my mother, yes. who struggled so hard just to live and to support me as a young boy. And my, 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 uh, my Italian family was so kind. Only in retrospect do I realize how kind and generous and and growing and nurturing they were to me. And I didn't realize when you're a kid, you don't really appreciate all that, but now I see it differently. And also people in my life at the city of, at City College, where I was an undergraduate, which was a, an experience of a, for ne never to be forgotten experience. It stayed with me so much and so deeply that I wanted to go back and never leave. And I did eventually go back as a professor. So I stayed the rest of my life. I was in my, my undergraduate years and then even when I started to go back to graduate school, I was teaching there. So it was immensely important to me. The people I met there, the professors I met there, you know, again, as I say, not all of them, they weren't Lionel Trilling, they weren't famous people, but they were really extraordinary people and for the most part, profoundly brilliant and published writers, published people. I mean, not, not, not nobody's, but uh, Hans Kohn, who just worked on nationalism, people in philosophy departments, people in literature departments, they were wonderful. And it grew, it grew, and I, um, uh, so, and I, I told stories about them. One, for example, uh, an interesting man called Leonard Ehrlich, who at 25 published his first and only novel called God's Angry Man. It was a famous book, success at the time. He was, he was immediately pro propelled into the literary world, the highest literary world at the moment. People like Carson McCullers were his friend. And he never published another book, ever, ever. He had done one novel, beautiful novel about John Brown, God's Angry Man, about John Brown, the abolitionist, mm -hmm. and was a perfectionist. And mm -hmm. uh, so 
I guess, so completely overwhelmed by the success of the first book that he must have thought that he had to measure it higher or go stand, meet higher standards. He gave himself higher, high standards and to his students as well, myself as well. But I think what happened is he, he, he probably thought that he could not just write a good second novel. He had to write a great second novel. Well, the long and short of it is I wrote about him, and I wrote about my friendship with him, and my discovery that, in fact, he had published, he had, I'm sorry, in my discovery that he showed me these two manuscripts of two incomplete novels, manuscript, typewritten, every one of the two novels, except everything finished except the last chapter. The final chapter, he could not write the final chapter. I was 19 years old when I met him. And I couldn't tell him then. I didn't think then. I should have said to him that I'll write it for you. Dictate it to me. Do anything, but let go of it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he died in a kind of tremendous anonymity. His uh, all his documents are at the Berg Collection, I think, and they're at the New York Public Library. Uh, so one day I hope to go back and take a look. Maybe there's more about him that I didn't know. But uh, that's the kind of memoir it is. It's about people like that. People like a man named John Resco. Who'd yes. been in prison for 20 years when he was a young man? He, he killed someone in a holdup when he was 17. He was in Denimore, a prison for 20 years. I met him when he got out three years after he got out because he was a painter, an artist. And he was released, really, because of the efforts of people to, to tell the world that he was rehabilitated, not that he ever was a real criminal. He was in a holdup. It was, he, was in a, he did a holdup uh, with an older man on Christmas Eve. When he had no money and his child, and wife and child, and were literally on the height of the depression, no money, nothing. He had been a merchant seaman as a boy, and there was no work. There was nothing to ship out, and they were literally hungry in the Lower East Side. And he went out with this older guy to rob a grocery store. They thought it would be nothing to do. It's nothing. The guy came at him with a bat, and the older man gave him a gun and said, "Shoot him!" And he didn't kill him. And that was it. He caught him right away, and they were. He was uh, the other man was executed within six months, and John Resco was given three life uh, reprieves, three reprieves, and the final one, uh, a long uh, 20 life, life sentence in Dannemora, the worst prison, one of the worst other than Alcatraz. And we became very friends. He was like my father, because I had no father. So the, that, it, the book is about people like that. It's about, mm-hmm. it's about, it's about John Resco, it's about Leonard Ehrlich, it's about all these people and how they wove into my life and myself into theirs. Uh, and then ending with, uh, it goes into 1964. So. It, you could follow his years and my years in, in, as a young man in Mexico and then going to see Hemingway in Havana. I mean, it's, it's kind of glamorous in a way, but it isn't the glamour I'm too interested in. I was really interested in the kind of, you know, coming, I hate to use, I hate it, I was Bildens Roman, I guess, a novel of education of a young man who wants to come into life with, you know, very little means and uh, support and finds a way for himself. That's what I wanted to do. And I wanted to say also to other people who are like myself, you know, impoverished when I was a child, you know, what, what, what things there are to be happy about in life, what beautiful things there are in life, what beautiful books there are to know about, and all that stuff. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm going on a little bit too long about this. No, no, it's, it's very interesting. And I wanted to go back to your time, uh, you know, meeting Hemingway, or would you say the more glamorous elements, but from this humble perspective um, and your time in Mexico but if you could go back also and just talk a bit about your grandmother you're talking about your mother there's that beautiful story self-portrait with Sicily which I love and uh, oh thank you thank you thank you and I, I I'm, I'm curious because I imagine that my young life might be in that tone I don't know because I know that I mean the self-portraits fictions was almost the first volume of um, my young life I, I don't know 
or, or this series of memoirs. So uh, I, I do love that. So did you talk about the, the stories you t- exchanged with your, your grandmother? I believe there was it was often in Sicilian. Well, she spoke in Sicilian, and I answered her in English. Mm. I mean, that's how we that's how we we we, we did the world. Um, uh, I, I mean, I broke in the Sicilian, and her broken English was so painful. But no, she told me stories about growing up, and and mostly it was dreams that she had. She was very dream oriented. She believed the dreams were the authentic thing. Mm. I mean, if someone who had died came to her in a dream. She would say, oh, you know, cousin so-and-so came to me in the dream yesterday, last night. I said, really, grandmother? She said, yes, yes. And she told me that everyone is all, everyone is, is happy there, and I should be happy because I'll be seeing them soon, and we're all happy together, and uh, I should be happy. She believed that these dreams were like visitations. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I guess it's very Sicilian. Maybe it was that generation, too. Oh, told me stories about when she was a child and, 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 and poverty in Sicily. And of how she met her uh, husband, you know, literally met him under a tree. <laughs> she was standing under a tree in the hot sun, and they talked. I mean, simple stories, but touching stories. And uh, stories of how she had to come, and her husband eventually had to leave, because literally, the, the I don't know if you call it the mafia, but the bandits who were in that region, in their area, came after them, because her husband was a, a carbonati, he was a policeman. And he went after them, and they came after him, and they said, you know, we'll burn your house down, and we'll kill you, we'll kill your children. And they got out. They left and came to America. She was 26 years old when she came here, 26, and he was 48 or 50 almost, and had no money and didn't speak English. I mean, that, think about coming to America in, that, in those terms, with nobody here, no money ahead, humiliation of the language, not speaking it, speaking it, and Italians weren't treated very well in those days. They were looked down upon very much. So those are the stories. I mean, uh, I tell a little bit of it. I tell a little bit of it in the uh, memoir. All right, because um, I imagine I I know that I, it seems like you're sort of I don't mean to say between two worlds, but um, you know when I hear you speak, you know your Bronx, Bronx accent comes out, but I also imagine you you're like genteel. And I think of you in the European manner, and I wondered was some some things writing about your family. So that's kind of difficult or are there things you know what you keep um, in soft uh, out of focus well I, I don't know if I understand the question but the thing is this this was not it's interesting to me and I thought about this somehow uh, the difference between where we lived in the Bronx which was basically a Jewish neighborhood almost or everyone was, almost everyone was Jewish mostly German Jews mm-hmm. highly skilled professionals not doctors or lawyers but um, they had skills, for example, like making crowns of teeth or, or grinding eyeglass lenses. And so they had semi-professional skills. They had enough money to get out of Germany just in time. My neighborhood was filled with those people. And they were basically people who read a lot, listened to music a lot. It was a whole world of culture that surrounded my neighborhood, a whole world of it. My mother read, but she read romances. She wasn't an intellectual. She had no college education, no high school education. She left grade school to help support her family. But about my family, the thing I realize now is that never did I feel, and feel then or now, that there was anything but a great deal of courtesy and gentility among them. And and it's not literary sophistication or cultural sophistication or intellectual sophistication, a certain worldliness and a certain kindness 
that I now understand deeper than I ever had before. Uh, how they were with me, the generosity, the way they treated me and, and, and tried to nurture me. But I also think, when I remember when, my, when I make this particular point, in the, in the Bronx, the separation was uh, the Bronx, and then it was Arthur Avenue, which was Italian-American. My mother didn't want to live there. She made a point uh, to go to the, the Jewish neighborhood, because she thought that that's where culture is, where education is, where books are appreciated. And she was right. To some degree, she was some. To some degree, she was right because the Arthur Avenue neighborhood. Even now, when I've gone back to look at it, there's not one bookstore. There's nothing. So it's uh, restaurants, uh, you know, tenements. Even now, right. uh, and it, I don't know what. I mean, I'm being crude about this, but I'm I'm grateful for my family and uh, and the courtesy they showed to each other and the gen the gentleness and the fineness of it. That's what I think really struck me the fineness of it, the, the sense of decorum, of, of warmth, of familiar, familiarity that wasn't too familiar, all of it I saw in my, I saw growing up, and I moved, it moved me profoundly. But then when you speak about Europe, you know, I, my dream was to be in Europe all the time. My, my dream was to, not Italy, but to go to France. I dreamed of France since I was 15. I thought about France all the time. I read those novels, like Van Gogh's, like, uh, Van Gogh's letters, and I read Van Gogh's biography and all the people who went there and the artists who went there and gathered there and I was 15, 16 years old and I dropped out of high school to go become a painter. How am I going to do that? I have no idea. What, what did I think? How was I going to do that? But I dreamed of speaking, I was dreaming that I was going to save enough money and go to Paris and become a painter in Paris. I dropped out of high school. I went to the Art Students League. This is in a memoir. Yeah. Foolishly, I didn't know anything about how to make a drawing of any sort, but I thought I'd learn and uh, but but Europe and the French culture especially moved me. Uh, well, French literature and French painting. I mean, French painting theater. Those painters who who are either there as a guests like Van Gogh or even Gauguin. Uh, but uh, or Cezanne, of course, most importantly. But Paris was the center for me. And I guess I'm a Francophile. I still am, unapologetically. And I guess in a certain deep sense. I'm a Eurocentric, unapologetically. I'm a, I'm, I'm a uh, white male who was raised in a Eurocentric culture, and I believe uh, I believe very deeply in the culture of Europe. But that doesn't limit me. I mean, I traveled in South America. I've written about South American cinema. I've written about Brazilian cinema novel. I love the cultures. I love them. I would have lived in Brazil if I had had the chance. I mean, the only other place I'd want to be would be in Brazil or Mexico City in the old days. Yeah, I mean, uh, yes, that's what I'm trying to say. I don't know what I'm trying to say. You know, I, yeah, I'm just, I'm just talking. Forgive me. No, just talking. I mean, it's, a, it's an art. I think. I mean, it might be vanishing, but I did wonder. Uh, uh, I don't know if it's indelicate to say, but beyond the merits of the uh, French culture, and you've had many important um, collaborations and friendships with, you know, we were speaking before with uh, Raymond Carnot and. Uh, and all these other collaborations you've had and the admiration for painter Cezanne do you feel sometimes your curiosity for the French culture was it I hate to ask these personal questions but was it also as you look back maybe a desire also to get closer to your father I know when you wrote the Italian well my father was a southerner from mm -hmm. Savannah Georgia yeah. I mean the roots supposedly the roots of the family were French Huguenot. Yes. 
But they had, I don't think, my father, I don't think, ever left the United States. He'd never been to Europe in his life, oh. I think. I mean, later, well, once in his life, I know he did some work in Greece, but some, some stuff he was doing in Greece was construction work. Mm. Why and how he went to Greece after the war, I guess they were rehabilitating Greece. But no, there was nothing. His culture was entirely Southern. It was entirely, entirely a Southern culture, except, and, and for what I think I've written about in Thailand, I deep pride for him, I deep pride I have in him, for him, was that he was, and insofar as none of us are, or we all are, he was not racist. He left the South because he hated it. He hated, he, he hated the, the way the black people were treated, how they were lynched. He hated everything about it. And he came North, eventually came North. And uh, he, his dream, I found out only much later on in life that he wanted to be a writer. I didn't know that, almost until his deathbed. But uh, nothing came of that. Um, he um, came from a middle-class family in the South, family of lawyers, and he hated that too. And he became a, he became a kind of wanderer in the working class. I mean, that's how mm-hmm. I see it. Where Gauguin went to, uh, to Tahiti, the exotic world, my father left the middle class and joined the working class. That's what he did, no question of it. He felt, I see it. <coughs> and he would bring people he worked with to the house at night and play cards and talk and drink, and he was in love with it. So, uh, but that was the culture. That was his culture. A leftist culture. You know, he was a kind of lefty. Uh, union people. He loved that. He loved all of that. And I admire him for it to this very, very day. I admire him immensely for that. Uh, but there was no, the only European side of my family life was on my, my grandmother and my mother's side, the Italian side, who were both Sicilian. And then my, um, my mother's uh, uh, sister was married to a man from Bari. Uh, so it was all Southern Italians, but 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 really, I mean, nothing crude about it. There was something I realize now how extraordinary they were. Appreciative of culture, even if they didn't have a resounding, you know, avenue to it, but they understood feeling for it. They loved opera for it. If they could listen to it on the radio or snippets of it, they could be thrilled. Uh, that's it. My love for Europe had to do with, I guess, a wish to be different. Mm-hmm. And not to fe- be in the Bronx. And yeah, you've ever felt you uh, were born in the wrong country? Well, I'm not sure I was born in the wrong country. I mean, I'm very happy I was born here. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure I was born in the wrong country. But it would be it, because it, it is wonderful to have more than one culture, as you know. Mm. I mean, to, to it, it's a great thing in life. It's a wonderful thing in life. If you know other languages, it's stupendous because it gives you some access in both in reading and uh, fluidity of places, but also to know that you can have uh, two exciting places to be in, uh, two exciting languages and two exciting cultures and two exciting places to visit. That's what I love mostly. I don't think I was born in the wrong country. I wasn't really born in America. I was born in the Bronx. Uh. That's a different planet, too. You know what I mean? I was born in New York City, but not even New York City, in the Bronx, which is its own world, which was its own world, its own system of behavior and thought and food so um yeah that's what i guess <laughs> i guess i could put it that way i was born in the right country i was born in the country of the bronx <laughs> i think <laughs> it's um <laughs> no I, I yes it's its own country as um 
I think that it's definitely for as you speak about it and as I experience your writing I don't know if it's uh, just uh, your grandmother or your mother but this idea of this kind of dreamlike description of things uh, it seems you spoke about how she felt dreams as though they were reality and I see that you know it comes again and again in your fiction uh did, you know, th- oh, thank you. I, I don't like. I'm not. I mean, real, realist fiction is interesting enough if it's done very well. Sometimes it's just not done very well, like most mm. fiction. But I think it's it's um, it's profoundly limiting. I mean, to be to, to be concerned about verisimilitude, or to be concerned about the way people naturally speak and try to make dialogue sound like the way people speak doesn't interest me at all. At all. But we have life it, for it, that. It, so. so. We have life for that, as someone once said. Yeah, we have life for that. And, and also, I mean, the world is more mysterious than just the sputtering of a cigarette in a gutter. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's profoundly mysterious. And I think uh, there has to be a language attuned to it or try a language that tries to reach toward it. Uh, and, if, and situations that reach toward it, not just faithfully describe like a photograph, if that's even a description, a faithful description of a surface reality where supposedly events occur underneath it that have mystery. I, it's not my way. I don't believe in that. And I, I'm very sad to think that most American writing is so limited, so profoundly limited now. I, it's not interesting to me. I don't think there's much writing anywhere else that I can find as a except maybe Latin and South America, Bolaño. Yes. Bolaño. Yeah, Bolaño is, Bolaño, as my friend would say, Bolaño is the joint. He's great. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's, it's power, powerful and wonderful and strong writing. I mean, it comes out of that other world. I don't see it today here in America. I just don't. I don't see it. I see kind of uh, maybe well-made novels. Uh, they they, they, uh, they uh, subscribe to the formulas of MFA writing uh, about the arc and the plot and the character and likable characters. That's dreary and awful. Uh, it's dreary. I mean, to make novels where you have likable characters, well, you never have Moby Dick, you never have the Crime and Punishment, you never have most of the novels that make or lunatic people like Cervantes has. I mean, it's just dreary, dreary, dreary and uh, upsetting to me. I'm sorry that young people don't have a visit haven't really enough visitation of other literatures and cultures. I'm sorry, sorry to say that. Yes, I definitely. Anyway, then we thought, I mean, yes, the dream world is powerful to me. I mean, not that I want to, I don't see myself as a surrealist where the dreams are the center of my writing, mm-hmm. but somehow there's an element, uh, the elements in which oddness can occur with credibility. Mm-hmm. The odd, the unusual, the mysterious, the fast, the, the um, unexpected, the surprise, those are the things that interest me in characters and in events. And, uh, well, for example, in Van Gogh, where you have a uh, man here in the Lower East Side, where I lived most of my life now, my grown up life, and, and a photographer one day sees a woman come across to a wall, and she's coming from the 19th century. I mean, people will say, What kind of stupid thing is that? How can you come across a wall from the 19th century? Well, you can in fiction. If you write it well enough, I hope I have. So those are the things I'm interested in. I'm interested in. I'm interested in. I I I, I guess I, it's so awfully pretentious for me to say it, but I want to get to the core of things as much as I can to what I know of it. I want to go to the center of things. I don't want to go around it. I don't want to tell the surface of it. 
I don't know, I want to go to something that's, you know, deep in our hearts, all of us, deep in our hearts. I don't, I'm not, I don't, I'm not religious, I don't believe, uh, maybe I don't, I'm an agnostic, and it's odd to say, but I believe somehow in the soul. I don't know where it is in us, I don't know if it's, I mean, if it's immortal, imperishable, but I feel that, and I feel that, that, that I want to go to the soul of literature in some deep way, I want to go to the soul of living. I, as I'm talking to you, I get embarrassed. No, I don't I, think I, I, you have to apologize for that. I I think that it's important. I think that that's one of the reasons, what, what's the importance of the arts and the humanities, is that it nourishes this part of ourselves that we have to keep hidden most of the time. Absolutely. You know, for economic absolutely. reasons. I mean, if, yeah. liter if literature doesn't nourish us, what's the point? Mm. If literature doesn't nourish us, we don't, in, in an unfathomable way, I don't know how it does it exactly. It doesn't make us better people. Doesn't make us much nicer people necessarily. But it does nourish in a way that no other thing quite does. I mean, not quite. You have other nourishments, but great literature, great, great literature, just fills us with a, with a feeling of the one, not not the answers to life, but the wonder of it. Yeah. And I, I that's the, that's and and the joy of it and the mm. that that we can create outside of ourselves things that were not us but they're us, a fiction, mm. a literature, a poetry that nourishes others, well, whoever we may be. I mean, like Wagner with his rotten personality and terrible character and miserable anti-Semitism and the rest. But look what he gave us. That's what we're talking about: a mm. transcendental art. Art that transcends itself and, tr and gives us a sense of transcendence. That's what I'm interested in. I just say that when I you knew finish a, you, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. No. When you when you finish something so extraordinary and you don't even understand maybe what it is, what it means. I mean, a, po a poem by Wallace Stevens, a poem by Emily Dickinson. You may not say I can explicate this. That isn't the point. It leaves you. It leaves you something with a residue inside of you. And it means an awful lot because it means that you're alive in the deepest sense, that you may not be just an ordinary way in any other activity, in that, that poem or that music or that painting. Mm. That's what I think it's about. I mean, oh, I want it to be about. I just, you were talking about uh, Van Gogh's Bad Café, and I'm just looking at the, the first lines. It, it seems to speak to what you're talking about, transcendence. If I'll just read it here, unless you have it there, I'd prefer it in your voice. I have it right here because you asked me about it, so I took it away. I have it. I got it off the shelf. I oh, yeah, I see what this is. Yeah, yeah, that one, the opening. You, know, you want to say something about it? If you want to read it, that would be good. Well, I, I would like that. I, I, I would like it. Please forgive my hesitations, and but I'll just read it right off. It's the first chapter of Van Gogh's Bad Cafe. It was different then. You could be standing by a burned-out lot, waiting for no one and nothing not even for a lonely red bus. You'd be just there, studying the rubble of a building along Avenue C, charred bricks and shrieking plasterboard, a bathtub naked on its side, and through its drain, a lone sunflower, sulfuric yellow and furred like a honeybee screwing upward toward a whirling yellow sun. Standing there at that corner, you could say hello to the wildest strangers as they passed you by. Because down there, we were all loose change, tripping the streets, the coins falling where they may, liberty dimes and buffalo nickels mixing promiscuously, without a thought, on some blue curb below 10th Street. That's the uh, first two paragraphs. 
so there's such beautiful toilet descriptions and as you say it's it's really elevated I know I mean you know these areas and at that time I think it's gentrified more now Avenue C but you know at that time it's, it's, it's a very humble experience but how you're lifting it to something uh, transcendent as you say well, you know, what I hoped was, you know, of course, the, someone said to me, how do you dare write a Van Gogh, you're a ridiculous fool? Mm. I mean, how can you dare try to match in any regard anything of these paintings? But I thought, well, one thing I thought was, if one thing I thought was, you know, there's a certain lusciousness in this, in this, in this luscious, luscious sunflowers, for example. Sunflowers mm. meant a lot to me in this opening paragraph. That mm. somehow these, even rubble, even broken down buildings, even... A bathtub sitting nowhere that, that made, has a sort of gorgeousness to it, mm. and uh, I guess the everyday. If you if you see in the everyday something more than just the commonplace, that's what I hope. I hope I can do that in writing. I hope I can show that. In writing. Did you always I, want? I want to. Yeah. I'm sorry, please. No, did you always want to write about Van Gogh because you encountered his letters, or when did? How long did that? I, I was in love with him. Mia, I was in love with Van Gogh since I was a boy. And I can tell you ex exactly. I mean, I, I saw this film that was a very important. and uh, It's a um, Van, uh, It's called uh, Lust for Life. It's after, after yes. the Irving Stone novel, which I read at, at 14. So I read, I loved. Uh, the novel about uh, about Van Gogh made into a film. I think Vincent Minnelli directed it, and, and it was done with uh, Gauguin was played by. Uh, I mean, Van Gogh was played by Kirk Douglas, and, uh, and Gauguin was played by a wonderful actor whose name I can't, simply can't remember. And I remember being so smitten by the film and by the, the scenery, the scenery of the south of France, the scenery of what Vassar was, the flowers, his painting, and I remember how how it. I, embracing it was for me how much I wanted to be so much a painter a painter a painter but I think also it was the intensity of the life that attracted me the notion that artists really had intense lives I don't I mean today that's not so much interesting I think to people I don't think that that matters to people uh, too much I don't think that the drama of the artist is too much of a concern I think that the drama of uh, the art market is concerned and the drama of prices are and uh, who's where in the art categories of concern, but the notion that an artist gave himself or herself totally to the and committed totally to the project of, of creating art, whatever it meant, whether it took unhappiness or suffering or loss of family or whatever it meant, it was a total activity, total, and it had a mission. Mm. I mean, that's what I love about Vincent. I love him to this moment. He's a secular saint. Mm. He had a mission. His mission was to bring beauty to the world. To praise God through beauty, to praise the God, praise the God, whatever form of God is. Yeah. Um, no, to even just read uh, his writing. When I was a kid, yeah. that was so. I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. When you're a kid, that was so powerful. When you're a kid, that's. I mean, uh, when you're a kid, how? What an extraordinary role model. I mean, to see in that painter, to read his letters, to read his letters to his brother, that the, the, the how much he. I don't want to say suffered, but he did, uh, sometimes, I think, masochistically, sometimes unnecessarily. We would probably see him now as a lunatic in a deep way. I mean, a self-destructive. If, if he was in therapy, I'd counsel him. He's less self-destructive, of course. We know all that. So he was all that. He was self-destructive. He was ridiculous in many ways. 
but what he did and what he gave us, what he brought us, is incomparable. I mean, not just him. It isn't only Vincent. There are other great artists who did. But if you go at that period, look at Gauguin and look at those. Cezanne, even though he was sequestered there in the south of France with a little bit of income, survived to live decently. All of them represented a commitment to the art. Commitment. And it wasn't to the marketplace. It wasn't to fame at all. It was to the work. And I am, that, if anything I could ever ever talk to about to my students it's about that but either you feel that commitment or you don't you can't be convinced of it you can't be talked into it I mean you can't you either feel that desire to do something extraordinary and beautiful and wonderful and nourishing to others either you have it or you don't you can have a desire to be famous you have a desire to be rich you can have a desire to be well known you have a desire to be adored you have a desire to be on television you have a desire to be highly priced in the auction market so what? Who are you? Yeah. What are you? Nothing. You can, you can just you can might as well. Yeah. You, I, I say to students, if you really want to make money, that's what your idea is. I mean, go sell drugs. Don't get caught. But don't. That, that, that's that money isn't the object here. That's what you're thinking. You're not an artist. You're just another hack. That's how I feel. And I feel about. I feel that way about most writing. Mm. Period. Most I see around come around me. Anywhere from anywhere. It's well made. It's done. It has popular appeal. Yeah. So what? Mm. So what? Well, when it what doesn't come from, I don't know that it has to always come exactly from life because we're talking about the importance of dreams, but if it comes from a real need, or I think that when you're talking about Van Gogh, it's a sense of sometimes, I, well, I'm just speaking personally, um, a sense of disappointment in the world. And so you really have to create a, a more beautiful one or a more meaningful one because you're seeing all the shallowness around well, absolutely I, I, I don't discount that motive the mm. motive to recreate what you don't have in life mm. to recreate a beautiful noble world when your street when your feet are in rubble I mean of mm. course as, as also that it's an it's a wish fulfillment in a certain sense mm. it's, a, it's a, the power you have to create a world you cannot really have in your own life of course that, I'm sure that's part of it I'm sure that's very much part of it mm. and, I mean I'm not speaking about the motive of the artist we don't know what every artist's motive I'm only saying that I was impressed as a young man by the notion of devotion and the notion of mission. Mm. I don't mean to change the world. I don't mean that politically. I don't mean that you write a novel and make people more conscious politically or anything. That may be a consequence or a subsequent a consequence of the work, but not the primary goal of the work. Otherwise, it's propaganda. But something, yeah. I mean, I find a poem by Wallace Stevens, uh, a poem by... Uh, Gates, uh, Emily Dickinson particularly, you know, I find they are changing me, and I hope then in some way that it has me be something in the world that I wasn't before, and it doesn't mean politically, it doesn't mean I vote differently, or anything like that, it's just, I don't know, I'm, I'm going on me, forgive me. I, I, no, I just, it's very I, I, interesting. I, 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 I like to follow it. And in a way, you know, uh, you have these questions that are kind of mapped out in a linear way, but it actually makes more sense when I'm thinking back, particularly to your first published novel, um, uh, Adventures of Mao and the Long March, that actually the structure of our conversation should be more branching off in all directions, in different Well, forms. whatever you think, whatever you say. Whatever you, you know, the thing about the Mao novel yeah. was that it started because 
an artist called Ernest Trova, T-R-O-T-R-O-V-A. No one knows about him today. He's vanished. But he was so popular in his time, in that, that period, I think it was the late 60s, he was famous. The Falling uh, Man? One of his sculptures, The Falling Man. It was, in front of, it was a sculpture in front of the Guggenheim. Mm -hmm. That's how famous he was. He's vanished from the world. I mean, rightly or wrongly, I don't know if the work looks like that. I'll be like corny. But he, he asked me to write something about the long march for a magazine that he was called Artist Slain, that he was only going to put into this box of objects of the Trolling Man series. You can see, look it up online, you'll see it. And I started it as that. And he said, do whatever you want. Now, that's profound for any writer, to do whatever you want, not to be constricted, but maybe to give you a certain format, like the Olipo people. You have a little format, and you can do whatever you want within the structure. That's fascinating to me. Or someone saying to you, write a poem, but maybe use Octava Rima. Well, it's old-fashioned, but you can break it. You can do what you want with it. Mm. Anyway, that's how it started. And then I just, I, I just had so much openness and latitude to do it. So that was the sort of very abbreviated version of what became the novel. And, of course, there were, when I say politics in the novel, not necessarily mixed. I mean, in the sense that a political novel may have consequences like, or so, social novels do. I'm thinking of Uncle Tom's Cabin, which really was powerfully powerful in the abolitionist movement that did change things. And there are novels that change things. Two Years Before the Mass, the legislation about flogging of sailors. I mean, there are lots of things like that, you could say. Or the wonderful book uh, about the meat market, the meat, part, meat packing area in the 19th, uh, 20th, turn of the century. Uh, Upton Sinclair's book, that changed people and the way they thought about the meat processing. Those are very particular things. But when I but the, so there is of course social world around you. No one's no one's no one's in, in a bubble about that. And the Mao novel happened at a time when the the, the world was thinking about social change, giant social upheaval, giant social change, and China seemed to be on the right track for a while. It seemed to I me, mean, from my point of view. Uh, which is that, that the Soviet Union had already become a bourgeois state, a bourgeois state capitalism, repressive and uh, tyrannical, and a police state mentality, you know, crushing dissidents. And so very people, many people, oh, it's going to be different than China. They're starting all over again. They're not going to be stuck with <coughs> this horrible Russian ideals. And of course, that wasn't true. And I hope I, I saw some of that in the, in the Mao book, too, that there was a glimpse the potential of what happened to that country. I mean, the, the abject crushing of free spirits and the crushing of democracy and the crushing of even uh, social benefits for workers, nothing. But anyway, that was, that was part of it. I wanted, to, I wanted to have that as part of the book, but not the only thing about the book. I mean, it's certainly, not, it's, certainly that's not, it's certainly not that. And the thing I wanted most of all, most of all, I wanted to write a novel that was not an autobiographical, I grew up in the Bronx, my grandmother said this, my grandfather did that. No, 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 I, I didn't want that, I didn't want, I thought that was um, too easy, too easy. Also, there was a period of so, a, a literary experimentation, and also of art experimentation. I mean, Rauschenberg was very powerful, Godard was very powerful, and the films, so I want, someone's ringing, my, my, my assistant is coming. Hold on a second. Hello, I'll be right there, hold on. Okay. Uh, so that I felt also a great feeling, a great feeling to break the novel, to break it. It was, it was, it was how can I say, very arrogant in a way, 
but to break its normal functional structure and to do something different. That was very important to me. And, and there's other, other people in my time were writing like that, doing different kinds of books. Bartha made this writing different other people writing I can tell you some in detail later on if you like yeah. you but there was a sense of there was a, there was a sense that, that we were tired of the same old formula formulaic novel we didn't want it how I mean Steve Katz in a book called Exaggerations of Peter Prince I mean there's lots of examples of it and all now all gone under the tidal wave of what I call bourgeois realism I mean that's what it really is you know terrible 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 With the novel. and the balkanization yeah. The, the balkanization of literature, which I find disgusting. Uh, I'm on the phone with Mia. Hi. So, um, yeah, but now you hear, now you hear all my my grievances and my uh, my prejudices. Forgive me. No, yeah. I think that the novel. I mean, and there and there are people experimenting. But yes, the novel should be a place where it, it you can introduce, you know, uh, your. Um, intellectual interests. I mean, I know you introduced your art criticism and film and book parodies, and why shouldn't it? I mean, in fact, that's in a way more lifelike um, than the, the strict realist novel. So I don't... But Mia, yeah. Mia, you're an artist and you understand the problem. The problem is, is this, in an, I hope in a nutshell. If you're a painter, you can be the most lunatic, radical painter in the planet if you have 12 collectors you can live well for the rest of your life. You can't sell 12 copies of a book. It has to appeal to a large audience. That is exactly the problem in a certain sense. Yeah. You can't really have, you can have these books published, maybe some independent press, maybe mm -hmm. New Directions will do it, but maybe. Yeah. But the notion of being a radical artist, I don't mean politically, mm -hmm. but radical, going to the roots of the structure of art, mm -hmm. In, in fiction, it's almost impossible yeah. because you see every day what they want. And by the way, to sell 30,000 copies seems paltry. The conglomerates are ruling over these people, these editors. They have to produce lots of money or else they lose their jobs. Yeah. So they have to find books that have popular appeal and or middle brow appeal that seem like art that are not. I mean, they have that. They seem like there's something really heavy and serious about it. I mean, one, but they really are. They're, they're in the guise of it. They require yeah, a lot of exposition book. and yeah, this kind of. So I mean, that's what I think is the difference between, let's say, painting today or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't need a large audience, and the large audience is not exactly, you know, an avant-garde audience. They're an audience that wants to have their story told with well-liking, likable characters and exciting plots. And, normal stuff. Hmm. So, well, that's, I, I worry, I, I mean, you have your, I just want to, um, you have your assistant there, can you still talk? Yeah, sure, oh. he's in the other room now. Let me say something. Okay. Uh, uh, I'm, yeah, I can still talk. Yeah, All right, that's great. Um, God, what were we talking about now? <laughs> I don't remember. Um, well, yes. so the marketplace and all, you know. Yeah, and yet that's, that has its own, I don't want to say contamination, but you know, because it's it is a marketplace, like you can't avoid the market. But yes, I wonder if we're really today. I don't like to speak about. I, I'm worried about the future of literature. Not that I feel like you know novels will die, poetry will die. I I I keenly and the people I know obviously keenly feel the importance of it. But I wonder if we're producing as though you could produce in the factory enough readers who really feel words. 
the meaning of words personally. That's, that's yeah. the problem. Mia, that's, that seems to be uh, a major issue mm -hmm. because there are so many interesting things to take our attention. I mean, I watch television a lot. Yeah. Weeds, I mean, I can think of Breaking Bad, which is genius. I mean, these things compel us. We want to sit there and watch them and to be excited by them and, and love them. So when you say fiction, well, what is it, it's going, what is it going to, especially to younger people, Yeah. what is it that is going to be there that's going to excite them as much? And a lot of it has to do with language, but there's been a profound debasement of language. I mean, I'm among everyone, not just a few readers, among the writers themselves, among publishers, editors, that's not, they're not looking for the writing, they want a story they can sell. That's maybe always been the case, but it seems to me the appreciation for what we're talking about is not as, not as great. That's what I think. The idea of reading for the, for the loveliness of the language, not just blabbering language, but language that matters, makes form and content mix and cement to each other. Yeah. That seems to me more and more difficult. There are always people who appreciate it, love it, of course, but they're diminishing, I think. And even if there were some there, it's not exactly the support of the industry. No. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I do know. We, 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 I'm not saying that the fate of the novel is that the novel is dead or po poetry. I think well, no, not poetry because there's always going to be some faithful readers of poetry, and you don't need that many readers in poetry. You know, poets can manage selling 300 copies of a chapbook, and it could be great. Uh, but in fiction, I don't know. I mean, it isn't. I think the fiction will end. No, I mean the, the novel. I don't think the novel will end. You know, paint, if you're always talking about the death of painting, the painting's not dead, it will never die. I mean, was, oh, you're in conceptualism, I mean, that whole period, oh, you see, painting is finished. Well, it's not finished. And the novel is not finished. It may take different forms, and it may not be as important as it was, say, a hundred years ago to us, for lots of reasons, including what it means to have other things to drive our attention. But I think that what you hit upon is right. It's the, it's the love of language. It's language. And, uh, I mean, there was a time when I was a kid, in high school, you had to have a second language. In high school. In college, when I'm an undergraduate, to be an English major, you had to know one of the three, Latin, French, uh, French, German, or, uh, French, German, Hispanic, and the Latin or Greek, to be an undergraduate. Now, I don't think there's any language requirements. You don't even have the sense of the nourishment of, a, of another language to add to your life. So, these are all, I mean, I'm going far afield from what you were asking me. I'm sorry. No, it's it's interesting. Well, they're important issues, and I think we have to if we we have to fight for the the importance of language because it's nuanced thought. It, it leads, you know, it's not. People are obsessed with um, using their time efficiently. So. And, yeah, I'm, uh, just, I'm just ringing the bell back to these people. Yeah. And funny? just. I'm sorry. Hold on. Yeah. Is it okay? I would like to talk yeah, a little yeah, bit yeah. Um, more about Mao and uh, the different, if you could describe the um, its form. So they had to go and find refuge, and they packed up everything, guns, factories on their back, literally dismantling shops and carried it by mule, horse, and Mahanesh back all the way to Yemen. Yenin, which were cave-ridden, and they hid out in the caves. So the historical aspect of it is, it's factual. It's what factual is, as much as I could know, I mean, what I could learn, 
sure they had adopted it, but this kind of heroic march uh, all through China to uh, to survey themselves and regroup and then come back again and fight again. So that's historical. Now, intercut with that, I have uh, art parodies. I have I mean, parodies of uh, art criticism. I have parodies of American writers like Dos Passos and Hemingway and uh, Malamud. Uh, I hope in that time to do that. I wanted to synthesize their work in some way, arrogantly, and thinking, well, I'll, I'll nail them. <laughs> it's hilarious to think about it now. I'll sort of nail them. I'll get them. I'll, I'll synthesize them. And then I can chew them up and, and move on. All these crazy ideas. Uh, and yeah, so parodies, um, and in, in, interwoven, they would be like as if you were seeing a close up. You see the march, and suddenly the camera would come in, and you see a scene. So it'd be Mao in his camp with his, with his soldiers, or Mao by himself, and I think you mentioned this, Mao by himself by a campfire, and he has a tank, and Greta Garbo comes out of the tank and tells him that she's come to meet him because she's met wonderful, interesting men, but he's the most interesting in the world, and she wants to be with him. Those are the kind of, I hope, comical, and I hope some, some charm uh, and some humor. You know, the notion of a revolutionary like Mao <laughs> having a relationship with Greta Garbo, Mm. Uh, and thinking how lucky he was because, after all, the others, Stalin and uh, Mussolini and all these other guys just had third-rate women, but he could find himself with an incredible woman, internationally famous. I mean, it's kind of comical and also about power. It's all about mm. stuff like that. So that's the structure. It's I love the looks of it. Yeah, and then, he, and then he's criticizing uh, La Chinoise by Gondar, and it's just... It's playful. Uh, yeah, that's right. He does it. Yeah. Well, I have also, I forgot, at the end, there's a, a purported interview with Mao. Well, Mao talks about conceptual art. Mao talks about the Godard, where, I mean, as if he's so current. And what's, what's, uh, uh, what's, what's, what's funny to me about it is that I was used to be writing in those days for Vogue magazine. I used to be writing film, film reviews. And I was in Paris when the book came out, and Diana Vreeland, the editor there, wrote me a cable, sent me a cable saying, we love your interview with Mao. Can you go visit, can you, can you interview him for Vogue? So that was very funny. They thought I was going to go over under Aegis of Vogue magazine, and maybe, who knows, maybe they could bring over their models and we can shoot by the Great Wall of China. This is before the Cultural Revolution, even. So that was kind of... <laughs> and they really thought the, they thought the interview was serious. They thought that Mao was talking about the two Mars and he was talking about Godard. You know. <laughs> Since you are such great friends with Mao. <laughs> yeah, yeah he's like, you know, I just all have to call him up and say, hey, listen, Chairman Mao, both wants to meet an interview. You want to come over? Well, reality has kind of come that way now, but at that time, I don't think it was possible. <laughs> oh, that's no, funny. Yeah, yeah. So, um,. So you were at that time. That's interesting. You were you were at that time writing film criticism for Vogue and and. Well, other. I was at that time when I did the Mao book. I did. I pub, I published the Mao book a month after I got my doctorate mm. in American literature. So I was when I was writing the Mao book. I was still in graduate school. I had just finished my doctoral dissertation. I was or I was working on that. So. I also had been writing uh, for Vogue. I did film reviews. I did film reviews for Vogue. I was writing for the New York Times. I was doing, I was a stringer for the art for the art department, art division, if you want to call it. Yeah. 
So I was, I mean, I, I covered the San Paolo Biennale, I covered the Venice, Venice Biennale for the New York Times, I wrote reviews for them. I was doing everything I could basically to avoid getting my doctor. That's what I was doing. I was doing everything in order to avoid the horrible, boring stuff of graduate school. And I was writing the Mao book. So it was all together at the same time. It was a very kind of, very second period for me and a happy period. I was happily married, I had a wonderful wife and uh, wonderful friends, great friends. And it was a rich, rich, wonderful, rich period. Now that I know, it always seems better in retrospect anyway. So that's what I was doing. And you, yeah, at uh, the same time, you had many interesting, you know, artistic friendships that I was wondering did beyond uh, Trova. You said it, it grew out of that commission, but uh, I think that uh, the experimentation. I, mean, I, I got yeah. to be very good. I got to be very good friends during that period from '64, '65. With '64, uh, I think I met Roy. Was one of Lichtenstein, who uh -huh. I felt was the most important friendship of my life. I loved him very much. I loved his work profoundly. Loved his work. I loved how he thought about himself as an artist. He's one of those people, very quietly, silently, unannouncedly, uh, no stuff. He never talked about art. And he just did his work every day, systematically, with a quiet passion, deep. People think those pop paintings are kind of funny. Well, maybe. Or that he was a comic artist in some way. He is in some way. But as far as I knew and know him, or all his life, and the major, major part of his life here in New York, uh, he, he was deeply, deeply, deeply an artist. He wasn't making his paintings to turn out product, like most people I know today. And uh, he, he believed in it without, without ever pontificating, without ever talking about, oh, my mission of art, or anything else, I just did it, did it, did it. With, with a sense of the reach into art history. I mean, the feeling was part of the content without ever expressing it. I said that. Mm. I said it to him. I said, you're part of it, Roy, aren't you? You're part of the whole, the whole extraordinary dialogue that goes back to Giotto. Mm. I mean, that's how I saw it. I saw that he was in a line of continuity, and I told him that. He kind of didn't write about it, but I told him that. I said, yeah. and I, I, he, he, I guess he was very embarrassed in a way, a little bit shy about it because it's a, it's a you know it's a big thing to sell someone uh you know it's, it sounds so it sounds so heavy but um uh i said to him you know that's it and if you look at the work you see how we how how so much of the work is a how much of the work is a discussion with art with surrealism with cubism with futurism you know all those things he did in, the, in a way paradistic but in a way I think maybe, you know, in a way, what I had thought that I was doing, I mean, um, capture them, mm. capture the style, and then bring it to, to another place, bring it to another dimension, absorbing it, capturing it, synthesizing it, and then saying a little bit more, adding something, which I think he did profoundly in his work. I mean, uh, I think he's a really great artist, not just a good artist on a wonderful artist, but a great artist. I think he is in the line of continuity. He belongs with that line. It goes to Giotto, to Cezanne, to Poussin, to Picasso, whom he loved, by the way, as you know, if you see his work, and who he, he referenced to many times in his art. Anyway, it was a great relationship. I miss him terribly. I miss him terribly. I can't say every day, but he comes over, he comes over, and it's my life and my thoughts. 
he was an extraordinary Mia, uh, generous, kind, kind, uh, 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 unpontifical, uh, modest, but not 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 you know not stupidly so. He knew who he was. Anyway, I can't go on and on about him enough. Yeah. I just felt, and his wife was his wife and I were friends and stayed friends, you know, uh, forever, and we're still friends. I mean. Uh, so there's continuity there, but it, uh, when you miss, when you have someone in your life, man, a woman, a dog, a cat that meant a lot to you, and they're gone, it's uh, it's a it's a big hole, it's a big vacuum, and it can't be, it cannot be replaced. It can it can be covered over for a little bit, but you cannot replace it. It's too deep. Anyway, that's 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 the story about Roy. Yes, I knew Roy, and uh, I mean, I met a lot of painters. I was writing about painting since I was in graduate school. I was writing about it for Arts Magazine. It was one of the reasons I, one of the ways I can keep saying, I felt uh, I hated graduate school. I loathed it. I loved the, the mechanics of it. I loved the, the crushingness of it, the inspiredness of it. So I began to write uh, art reviews. That's how I got to the Times to do it. I started writing reviews in arts, arts magazine. And I used to go Saturdays to see the shows, or I'd go to the studios and see the shows, and I'd write about the paintings before they got to the gallery, before they had the show. I got to meet many interests. I, mean, I became friends at that time with Klaus Oldenburg, for example, whose work I had done. Uh, and there are others as well. Probably I'm mean, forgetting who they are at this very moment. But uh, yeah, it was Larry very nice. Uh, you know Larry, I became, I got friends with much later in life. Uh, Larry was uh, kind of, yeah, he's an interesting figure, but I can't say we, we knew each other. I lived on his property for two years. Uh, you know, rental. Uh, I, I mean, I, I lived there. I mean, you can say I stayed there from time to time. Mm-hmm. But um, he, was, you know, I liked him. Um, I liked his early work very much, very much. But I didn't get to know him until much later. I'm talking about the, the real rich period for me was like the 60s and 70s. That was the time. Uh, I, I, I mean, there are other artists I knew. I'm trying to remember who they were at this very moment, and I can't. Forgive me. But yeah, it was very important to me. The art world was very important to me, very nourishing to me. What they did, how they did it, um, materials they used. I know, I just see it as a contrast from your graduate school experience because they're they're making physical things in the world and it seems alive, yeah? Yes, and fresh. Mm. I mean, most stuff in the graduate school, most graduate studies in my time anyway, was just to know the material. I mean, you had to be someone who knew what happened. I mean, uh, it didn't take inspiration. You didn't have to be brilliant. You just had to do the work. So, and yet you got yet your doctorate. That was it. I mean, it, it, some people were great critics of literature. I mean, some Ethel Matheson. There's some great writers of non-American and European literature or any literature. But it's not the same as going to a studio and seeing a person making the painting before your eyes. You know. Uh, that was very different. That was kind of really extraordinary. I'm going to answer this to Okay, okay. All the, all the hens are coming to roost. I have four assistants now to do the archives. And the all right, is it, is it okay we still talk? No, I'm fine. I'm fine for talking. Yes, oh, as long as you want to talk. Oh, wonderful, because I, yeah, I do want to, as long as you're here, I told you I had 247 questions. I think we've gone through 30. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, so, no, I do want to talk about your next book, but then I'm also, well, now that we're talking about, you know, seeing artworks made, and you speak about, and, and also you've been there, you know, co-writing films and working, can you speak That's about... That's right, I did that. That's another thing that was very important to me. Yeah. I mean, I wrote about films for Vogue because I 
was also very profoundly, profoundly, profoundly interested. It sounds too many profoundlies, but in, in, in what we call cinema, but movies. I mean, since I was a child, I mean, after all, there was no television when I was a kid. There was no TV. There was radio. And, of course, the Radio Kids programs were wonderful. But the world, for me, was the movie house. I mean, not my whole generation. I mean, whether it was because it was summer and you had no, no place to go that was cool, which was the movie house, uh, and or just because you want to see film after film. And I, I grew up on movies, so I loved it. And when I had the chance, finally, to make a film, uh, to write co-write a film, I did with uh, Andrzej Zulawski. Which I, a film called Possession, and now yes. it seems to me I'm finding out that many, many people know about this film and sort of are moved by it in some way. So that meant a lot to me. And knowing Andrzej Zulawski meant a lot to me. He was brilliant, 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 and funny and warm and crazy and everything you'd like in a friend. And now he's gone too. So it's a lot of my feeling is about losses. I mean, there's a lot of losses at my age, of course. I mean, I turn, I'm turning 81. Saturday. Oh. So, yeah. That's so it means you know, there's a, if you live long enough, you're going to lose a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but I also feel now I'm in the throes of more work than I've done maybe 25 years ago. Mm. I'm I'm writing continuously. I'm so grateful to be able to do it and have the health to do it and the uh, the way with all emotionally to do it and uh, to try new things, Mia, to try new things. That's it. Try, try new things. Yeah. Don't repeat. Don't repeat yourself. <laughs> That's right. No. Yes. But, um, no, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, we, we want to talk about possession. It's so, yeah, I guess it's a cult yeah. film at this stage. It's it is a cult film now. It's an incredible cult film. When people, young people come up to me at a reading, and I think they come because they like my work, my books, my fiction. They don't even know about it. They know about possession. It's yeah. comical. It's really comical. I, I said, they said, we love it. We love possession. I said, really? We love it? Yeah, it's the best thing we've ever seen. I said, you, have, you cannot have seen many films if you think that. You know, what if you know about films if you can think that? But they love it. For some reason, it's powerful to young people. I'm very glad. I'm very, very happy. Yeah, that's it. Uh, so I'm sorry. You were asking about possession. I got really Oh, it's, I, uh, it's, a, it is unsettling for me. So I, am, I I try to pick apart which are your lines and which are your ideas. And Oh, it's very hard to do that. You know, uh, when I started to write, uh, I forget who it was, a uh, wonderful, maybe it was Alain Benet. Was, I, 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 I forgot to mention it. Mm -hmm. Why did I forget to mention that probably as much as Roy, it's not, not more, I didn't have that much connection every day with it, but probably one of the most important people in my life, emotionally, intellectually, was Alain Rene, mm. and his film last year at Marienbad for me is a masterpiece. Period. It's it's something I can't imagine how great it would be to explain. I mean, how it would be to explain how great it is to people. But it's one of the most beautiful, important films I've ever seen in my life. So I became very good friends with Rene, and Rene once said to me, "You know, when you start writing about, of course, it isn't true because how much in his life because he had." He had Rob Grier and Marguerite Dulard. He didn't touch a word, a word, a, a, a word. Maybe a suggestion, but I couldn't even doubt it. But it's writing for most movies is an enterprise of collaboration. So when you write a script, especially in, uh, in America, which I don't ever want to do, your language becomes anything else's language. Once it's there, it becomes the property of the producer. They can do what they want to In Possession, it was a mixture. Andre, Andre, Andre was lost in had a kind of rhythm. 
throwing out sentences to each other and cho choosing the ones we liked the best. I mean, it was a really wonderful collaboration in that regard. So I can tell you, for example, I can remember specifically that the part that I liked, that I remember writing in exactly all of mine, is when he's standing, the two parts, when he's saying, I had a dog once named Louie. He's talking about the dog going under the porch and dying there. Uh, that's that, I remember laughing. We were both laughing, and Andre and I were laughing about that. He said, Did you ever have a dog named Louie? I said, I said, Andre, I never had a dog. What do you mean a dog named Louie? But that was part, I mean, you can, that was part of the, the joy of writing together and having fun together. Yeah, I think sometimes some people say to me, they can hear, they can hear in the language what's close to me. They know my fiction, so they can hear how the sentences run and the rhythms of them. And they say, oh, you wrote that, you wrote that, you wrote that. Yeah, but anyway, it's Andre's story. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's again, the joy of having a structure and then filling in the structure like the Malbec. Yes, and, 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 and many of your fiction. And I'm just wondering, um, when you're writing, uh, and you're obviously when you're collaborating on a script, you're reading things out loud. But do you read out loud your work? I, I know you had a marathon reading of Mao. Do is that? Yeah. Does the feedback of audiences give you something, or does it is it part of your vision process? No, the the Mao thing was a fait accompli. I mean, mm -hmm. it was the novel, and, and, and yeah, I mean, a hundred people came to read parts of it all day and night. But that's another matter. No, I mean, I think it's a good idea. If this is advice to young writers, write the thing, put it away, week, two weeks, don't look at it anymore, do something else, go back it again, look at it much later with a cold eye, make the cuts, you can see that you didn't see, and if you can, read it aloud, because that way you'll hear the rhythm, you'll hear the sentences, you'll hear the flow of them. It's a good idea to have it around, or have someone read it to you, which I've done. I've had one where I said, hey, read the piece to me. And I can close my eyes and I say, no, that's not good. Change that. This soon as to put this. Yeah, I think it's a good idea to hear that. If you're interested in how sentences flow, and not just the have utilitarian function, yeah, I think it's a good idea to read it aloud. I absolutely think so, yes. Because I, I know, I mean, you wrote in Mao, and I, I, I know you're an admirer of um, Walter Pater, that you know, all art aspires to music. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, I, yeah, all art, uh, as he says, uh, I forget what the paraphrase is, but all art inspires the condition of music, which is to say uh, non-referential and pure, and uh, but that's hard thing to do in fiction or poetry because your language language changes. I mean, we're not speaking as Chaucer did, so we can't say we're writing perishable sentences and they're going to stay the same 50 years from now because the words you have different meanings. Even the words have different meanings. You know, and I remember in Shakespeare, when he's, uh, Hamlet says this, uh, to his mother, take it out to, uh, was it, abstain from that luxurious sheets. Luxurious sheets. Do you think, what does that mean? Expensive? Luxury sheets? No, no, it means lustful. So refrain from their lustful sheets. So we've had language changes. So nothing is permanent in writing. I mean, you only hope that for the time you have and what you're writing for the moment you have, that something has, uh, um, how do I put it, decency. And uh, uh, decency meaning that it's not corrupt a priori by the, by the very condition of your writing, that there's something beautiful to it. And uh, yeah, I, mean, I think that reading aloud is a helpful matter in that regard. And at least you hear the sentence rhythms 
Uh, maybe hear the words differently too. Mm. Yeah, that's what I would say. And it may be like the way we first experienced literature, so, you know, our, our earliest experience of writing. Yeah, it's hearing stories by the fireplace, remember? And, uh, you know, Boston said, you know, when uh, fictions that we sat around the fireplace, you know, before there was any writing, and people told stories. Mm. And the grip of the story was, as he calls it, the and then. You know, and then what happened? And then what happened? That's the fulcrum of fiction. Yeah, but of course, it's, 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 it was oral. I mean, all the recitations were oral. Before. So a lot of it has to do with our hearing it. And, uh, I think that's important. It's a story that certainly poetry is important. Yeah, I think, I, I think that's what I like about your writing. It has this, even though it's quite, you know, mature, and you know, if, if we go, can talk later about Tantan and these, um, your interpretations, you know, it's not, but it also has this wonder, uh, uh, as we were talking about the dream or uh, these beautiful images, the things that would a a attract might not be all understandable to children as, as they would read your fiction, but it has this uh, fanciful element that you can skip over the boring bits. I just want to go here. I want to swerve here. I, I want to take a train from Bronx right to Sicily. I don't want to go, all, you know, <laughs> I don't want to pass over the borders and all this, you know, the boring uh, yeah. bureaucracy. Uh, I like that. Um, so I feel it's very in touch with like our initial impulse, what we like. What, 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 yeah, well, what children, are, children are fanciful. They don't yeah. know boundaries. They can imagine everything. They can imagine flying. It doesn't stop them. Yeah, and Imagination I think they... Imagination hasn't been broken yeah. yet. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's the beauty of literature. Could, so could we talk a little bit about Tonton in the New World? Um, that was in 93 you wrote that. Were you in France then, or...? In, and I, I wrote Tan Tan in 93, I published it, I think it was 93. I, oh. started that writing, I started writing that I started writing that book, and I had a Guggenheim Foundation grant for that mm -hmm. book in 1973. Oh. I started writing the Tin Tin book as far back as 73. I published a book in between. Italien, a brief yes. romance, came out before the Tan Tan. But the Tan Tan I've been working on for years, and I think over a 16-year period. So that came out because I was completely smitten by looking at the albums, the Tantan albums. I saw some children reading it, and I didn't know about it. Americans don't know about Tantan. Some British children were reading it, and I saw them. I looked over their shoulder, and I started watching it, and I, asked, I begged if I could borrow the book, and the parents said yes. I was completely absorbed, and I was completely absorbed by Tantan for a long time. And I loved him. I still, I mean, this, it's a miracle. It's those, those albums are miracles. I think they're just every in every regard, from, from the coloring to the narrative to the dialogue, everything. And eventually, I met Hergé. It's a long, circumstantial story in itself. I met him to Alain René. Uh, I hoped that René had started to make a film of uh, of Hergé's um, Il Noir. It didn't go through. It didn't work. But they had stayed in communication. They had met each other. But René wrote a note to him. Hergé when he came to New York to meet me and I did and I liked him and he liked me we became good good friends I hope I think we were good friends I mean I, I felt we were and his letters to me show that and then I started a toy with the idea as early as 73 before before I met I don't think yeah, before I met George uh, about writing about Tantan. That's what I started writing. That was my Guggenheim. My, when I wrote my application for the Guggenheim, I told them that was the book I wanted to write. I wanted to write about Tantan, 
uh, and in the new world, which meant to transpose uh, and also to transpose Tantan to Machu Picchu, where he would meet the characters from the Magic Mountain, who were also on the mountain. So we have two mountains, one is in the new world, and I just went with it. I mean, again, what's interesting, I mean, from, maybe to people who want to write, I hope, is that the privilege of not having anyone looking over your shoulder. That, I mean, it's terrible because you don't have a contract for the book, you don't have any guarantee anyone will take it. In fact, it was rejected by every single publishing house in New York. That book was rejected by everyone, everyone. But the privilege of writing as you wish, as freely as your imagination allows, that's what I had to attend to. And I had to attend to. And so I can imagine him meeting uh, a woman from the Magic Mountain the way that Hans Kostoff met Javier Shaw in the Magic Mountain oh, yes. and fall in love with her and be transformed from a mere boy, pre-pubescent boy, into an adult with feeling and power of love and lust and even murderous impulses and jealousy. So I, I created him into, I transformed him, I hope, into a person uh, with a deepening character and ever-growing character. So by the end of the book, he's becoming... He's becoming more than just an ordinary human, an ordinary mortal, a uh, salvational figure. Even. So that was the joy of that book, yes. And, uh, and sadly, uh, George Remy, who was, and it was actually, he died before he could see the completed book. I was very sad about that. Um, I published a chapter of it in art form, but I think he was already dead by that time, too. Oh, but that was a very powerful, yes, I mean, I said to you, but I, but I met interesting people, interesting artists. I mentioned Roy, but Roy was my sustained friendship. Mm. I mean, he lived in New York, and then he went to Long Island, and I visited him there. With George, he was in Brussels, and I had to go visit him. I used to visit him frequently. And uh, I was living in Paris, especially. I take Tegé Bay, and I go over to Brussels and spend the afternoon with him. Or... So he was meant, I mean, these are, these are well, maybe there's a, the, the common thread here is those friendships, but not just important, famous people. There were people whose work I absolutely admired, loved, and loved what they did with it, and how they nourished the world because of it. I mean, they did. Lene did, Ajay did. And I might mention also another person whom I revere. And uh, I'm sure you know him in France. Mm. I can say absolutely I revere him. Is, is um, uh, uh, Raymond Cano. Mm. Cano, uh, who did the least of all of his books, Zazie Dan La Metro, who became my friend for the very brief time that I knew him. I knew him for basically two years before he died, but he was, and I love his work incredibly. So uh, those are the people, the main characters, if you will, if you will uh, of that kind of world I'm talking about. And you said glamorous or glamorous world. Those are, those are the figures. And other people, of course, as well. But those were the, those were the most nourishing components in my thinking about it. Writing. It's glamorous. Be it's glamorous because they're names, but it, uh, to, to some people. But what I think is maybe even more glamorous is their courage, and what I find in your writing is their courage to follow their imaginations and not to accept That's limits. That's absolutely true. Yeah, all of them. Uh, George Remy, uh, I mean, uh, Tam Tam didn't he want it? And, uh, and and look at Rene. I mean, those incredible films of his. They're so uncommercial, so unlike Hollywood, so unlike even French film. Mm. And uh, uh, Lichtenstein, and uh, uh, yeah, Cano, 
Were you um you you were like on the fringes of Ulipo then or were you uh, Ulipo? Well, I didn't know yes. I knew about it, but yeah. George Parrott had died by that mm -hmm. time because I remember Cano had said to me that I would love Cano, I would have loved Parrott, but of course Parrott had gone. Mm -hmm. And uh, my relationship to Cano wasn't although he did say to me that eventually he would propose me for Ulipo. I was mm -hmm. the other second Americans. Harry Matthews was the uh, Harry because it was Raymond Cano who took the Tantan, who took the, the uh, sorry, it was Raymond Cano who took for French translation by Gallimard, who took uh, the Adventures of Mao on the Long March. He loved mm -hmm. the book. So he could see in it the, uh, actually, the Olipo components. There's a structure, known structure, like the historical March of Mao, and then you do with it, you infiltrate it with other elements and transform it. So he was, uh, he loved the book. He was my champion at Yalima, um, and um, yeah, that, that's true. Olipo, but I didn't really know Olipo at the time I was there. It was far from my idea, but I knew about it. You know, it wasn't part. I knew Harry Matthews much later too. I knew Matthews. Yeah, American died. Uh, I think I so, don't know. Yes, go yeah. ahead. Yes. Um, oh no, I don't. Um, I don't actually know that much about Ulipo. I know that sometimes it's limiting in its structure, so I wonder would that be. Um, it's like no, very free, but very yeah. Yeah, the thing about Ulipo is it's simple. It's, it's, it's if I know everything. Cano mm -hmm. had been a surrealist, and he was influenced by surrealism. He wrote a novel making fun of surrealism, called Odile, mm -hmm. making fun of Breton. But he had been in the world of surrealism. And he challenges premises. I mean, surrealism is basically the unconscious and the flow of association of the free association of thought. Mm -hmm. And he thought that's really very limiting in literature. In fact, you know, what can more can it contribute? So you can replicate a dream, or you can you can go in hypnagogic states and write the association the you know automatic writing. There's a limit to that. He thought, well, and that's why Olipo is completely the diametric opposite of surrealism. No, not the uh, not the individualistic flow of consciousness or unconsciousness. No. A structure. A given structure, like a game. Let's write a letter without the let's write a novel without the letter E. Parrot did in uh, I forgot which book it is, which first novel it was. But so that you have a structure. So you come to it with already seemingly constraint. But within that constraint you can do everything you want. What you have already is a given format from which you can deviate, change, modify, and wonderful things can happen to it. Uh, in one of Cano's novels, I think it's pre-Olipo, but he had mathematical formulations for the chapters and how they'd be running in the novel La Chendon, for example. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, yes, I mean, no one format is completely, uh, whether it's Olipo or surrealistic or whatever, or any other formulas, no, no one format is everything, it's just approaches. There are approaches to how you want to work, mm -hmm. and they don't have to be always and forever. Mm -hmm. You know, you can do this, and you can do a bit of that. You can, you know, um, and the whole point is to, to do what the thing is that's most important to you at the moment in your work, and what it nourishes you, what gives you a nourishment to do the work. That's what I would say. I think it's so fascinating. I think, yeah. I, I think it's fascinating. There's some time. There's some people's works that I I can't imagine. Like I imagine for you because. If you don't mind me intuiting, I think that you have been, can I call you, a, you have been a little of a ladies man sometime in your life. 
Can I say that? Well, I hope so. <laughs> if, I, if I didn't, if I didn't, I wasn't, what point is there to live? <laughs> so you have people like Anne uh, Goethe oh, uh, who wrote Sphinx. Me, I want to qualify them. <laughs> All right. I mean, it could be a sense of that, which is pejorative, which means that basically, you know, I'm just chasing. But that's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about the love, the love of women. I'm not apologetic. How could you be? If you're a man, don't you love women? What do you love? If you're a man and love men, you love men. Whatever yeah. it is, you love them, period. Yeah, it's important. And you don't. So what? You know, really, I think, so you don't love women, you don't love men? Then what are you? What are you, a vegetable? Yes, well, I uh, think that we are, <laughs> or uh, an algorithm. <laughs> we may be going that way. But I, I was just talking about the Ulipo because I know there have been ex such experiments like um, Anne Goretta wrote Sphinx and like a novel with like no genders <laughs> or everything is yeah, a well, question I, mark. And I can imagine. That's it. <laughs> wait, 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 what novel? I want to know about that. Would you send me, please, I, would you tell me about that? Yes, I, I said to you. I mean, I, I don't know. I find it difficult. I find it an interesting puzzle. I mean, particularly to write in French that way, you know, it's very difficult to write things How without genders. <laughs> but even in life, just to write things without gender or to be so um, mysterious uh, that you're not sure what the gender of your protagonist is, and that's possible with an initial, but more so in, you know, the Romance languages. So. Um, yeah, so this, to, to me, that's sort of like a, a straitjacket nightmare. I, I couldn't imagine it, though I understand it's a feat of... Um, you know, linguistic acrobatics. Yes, if you ask me, if you say to me, I'm looking back at the novels, mm -hmm. is there a common thread among mm -hmm. other things? They're all love stories. Yes, they are. The Green Hour is a love story. The Van Gogh love, Van Gogh Van Cafe is a love story. He's besotted by the young character, Ursula. Yes. Uh, Mao is a love story, too. I mean, he's crazy for women and his wife and his wife. Uh, Tin Tin is a young boy falls in love with Claudia Chauchat. Mm. Uh, the Green Hour, uh, the love affair between the woman and her, the art historian and the man she's been crazy. It's all about this kind of very maybe romantic and old-fashioned idea of search for love mm. and for its permanence and for its viability and for its beauty. A kind of ideal as well, yeah. Yeah, it's a kind of a very romantic ideal. Yeah, I, I would say that. And it is and maybe, you know, absurd. In, uh, in the real world, but why not be absurd? If you can't be absurd in fiction, why why bother? You know, or in your feelings, or why bother? If you can't be, if you can't yearn, mm. what else is there? So it's the yearning. I mean, uh, for love, it's a yearning for Van Gogh's love for Ursula. It's a yearning. That's why I wrote that novel. I wrote it because I I imagined why I was trying to imagine why he committed suicide. I thought. With his personality, with my personality, the only reason is love. Mm. You know, love, love. The disappointment, the end of love, is suicidal. Encourages it. So that's what I did with him. So yeah, mm. I'm glad you raised that question because it's not just as if I'm making an abstract book. Mm. I mean, there's, they're love stories. They really are. And, and the stories, and the, the short stories, and self-portrait, uh, the very beginning. Louis and Marie. Like the whole love story. Yeah, the one with Marie. I always, it's always Marie. Where I got that, but that's what is it there is. a real Marie? You were married to Sim Simona. I was married to a Simona. Yes, but not to a Marie. <laughs> I don't know who Marie. I think you know what it is. It's an echo of uh, for me. It's an echo of the wasteland. This is a Marie. Ah, yes. Marie. Ah. I, I don't know why. I love the name Marie. Marie. Uh, 
somehow it sounds, sounds very romantic to me, the name. Ah. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, I don't like to speak as though, you know, every novel or every story was a mystery, but, um, you know, and there's a real person it's modeled on, but are there, there are some models. Well, there were, yeah. yeah, there are models, sure. Yeah. There are models. I mean, Van Gogh and Van Gogh's Bad Cafe, I mean, I, I've said it before, I think there was someone I was very in love with, and she was very much like Ursula, she was a mm. photographer, and very self-destructive, and very beautiful, and very brilliant, yeah. So that that's true, uh, and I think there have been models for women, if not one particular amalgams of women that were mm. mental to me and whom I admire and love and uh, have been passionate about. Of course, yeah, of course, they're all there. They're in the books. They're in the stories. They're in the stories. Yeah. Are there things? Yeah. Of- I, uh, no. Sorry. Sorry. no, no, I, I interrupted you. But are there things you can only say in fiction? Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's why it's a fiction. <laughs> maybe it's an obvious thing, but... <laughs> you know, I mean, of course. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, and poetry, on poetry. Mm. I mean, it'd be interesting if we could be as expressive in daily life as we are in our novels or poems. Mm. I think the Russians come closest to that 19th century. Yeah. Like in, uh, like in The Idiot, Dostoevsky's Idiot, where characters immediately address each other and say, Natasha Filipovna, I see your soul, it is so dark. I mean, <laughs> you don't say that too much in life. I know some people who speak that way, but, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> you can't spend too much time around them because <laughs> everything's oblique. Well, that's it, yeah. You have to drink a lot of vodka to go with that, too, don't you? Yeah. I'm ready to say that to someone. Maybe I'll do it today. I'll just find someone in the street and say it to you. I just said to you, but I know your soul is so dark. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, I'm wearing down. You are? Yes. Um, No, I've been, we've been going off topic. I did want to speak about some other things, but could we follow up a little while? I did want to talk. I've been talking. uh, I mean, I've been focused on my questions because it's just so enjoyable to, to listen to you. And um, I would like if we could follow up a little bit, if you had something to say about like the importance of the humanities, although we've sort of touched on it, just a, a few final things. Say it again slowly. The importance of what? We sort of spoke about the importance of creativity in the humanities, but I, I feel like I haven't touched on all your work and not so much. We didn't talk too much about... Um, um, art. I, there were some other artists I thought we might discuss because we might include well, some of their work. David Salyer's work I admire more than anything else today. Mm. Uh, the, I'm sorry you weren't here to see the show. It was just so extraordinary. Uh, and Eric Fisher's work I, I really love. And uh, I did that. Uh, he did a chapter, uh, one chapter of Van Gogh's Bad Cafe and made beautiful eight color etchings in the portfolio. Yes. So there's that kind of collaboration. Yeah. I mean, I wish I could collaborate more with artists I love. That's so nourishing to me. Oh. But anyway, please ask me. Please ask me again. Tell me what you're saying. Right? Oh Enjoy. no! I mean, you're you're wearing out. So we could follow it up later. It's just a, it's just a few of the things I want to make sure. But um, I feel like I've I've not touched on everything uh, because of. Um, 
Well, because I've been blabbering, that's why. Because I've been going on and on, that's why. That's why. This is important. I feel that this is an important quality for artists of all kinds to have, is to be, you know, not so straightforward and linear. We're talking about that. Like, once you learn how to do that. Well, do you want to ask me particularly some things that you want to ask me now? And so I have uh, yeah, we could, yeah. And if there was other, any other things to follow up with the transcript, maybe I'll send it to you and then you could, uh, you know, fill That would in. be wonderful. Yeah. Also, if you have something else in mind, we can continue it another day. You can continue yeah. Saturday morning if you like, Friday, whatever you like. Um, so send, send me the transcript and I can go along with you. Yeah, and I would also like to um, insert when when you're ready, because it won't be ready immediately because we'll accompany it with certain Perfect. artworks. So then I don't know when, what's the publication date for um, My Young Life, then maybe you'd like to include... That's, that's going to be a very far way away. I mean, oh. <laughs> okay, so we can... So, yeah. <coughs> it would be okay to in they're include telling, those. They're telling me, if I'm lucky, if I'm lucky, yeah. they'll, they'll have it published in the spring of 2019. That's, that's how far away. All right, that's why you're going with your archives and things, too. Yeah, yeah well, they're already booked. Simon Schuster is already booked for, for, for the fall of 2018. Yeah. So they're thinking in the spring of 2019. So we have plenty of time ah. if you want to work on that basis. We have plenty of time. Nothing pressing. Nothing pressing at all. We have time to do this and refine it and make it interesting. Excellent. And then I can include those excerpts or other excerpts that you that you wish sure. about your writing. Sure. Um, yeah. And then I think we sort of just this last thing, we did sort of speak about it, but what are your views on the importance of creativity and the humanities? Um, well, that's a very general question. What do you mean, the point, my point of view about that? What, what do you mean? Is necessity, necessity for art? What, what does it mean? Yeah, I should think about the future. I mean, I think that a lot of things are changing, and I'm wondering about the way technology is influencing people's imaginations. Uh, I'm just wondering what your thoughts of the future of communication and how uh, we are now changing, how it's changing the way we communicate and interact with our imaginations. So that's a very good question, and I really, really wish I had some knowledge of it. All I know is that when I walk in the street, I see people walking in the street texting each other, mm -hmm. or on the phone with each other, or sitting in restaurants and texting. Groups of people sitting together and texting. I mean, I think to myself, what planet am I in? I'm, I'm living in the 19th century, not even in the 20th century. I never, I never could imagine people were sitting. I mean, you must have seen it. Yes. Women and men sitting at a table together, texting instead of talking to each other. I can't, I can't imagine. Or people in the street on the phone all the time, or they're texting, literally almost walking into text. What is there to say in a text? What is there? I don't understand it. What, what, the, the, you're going to talk about the novel you read or just the boyfriend you met? I mean, I don't get it. I simply don't. Don't get it. But so I don't know what that means in terms of writing, in terms of the future of literature. I mean, if people are just interested in that all the time, I mean, television, even television seems like an old-fashioned thing. Who knows what's going to happen? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Let's just hope we survive. I mean, it seems so dire right now. Yeah. I, I'd like to believe... I'd like to believe that that uh, the art and literature and music that matters will matter. Uh, if it doesn't matter to a vast amount of people, it'll, allow, it'll matter to people who, to whom it matters, who, who need it, who can't live without it, who cannot live without beautiful music or painting or literature or poetry. They, they can't live without it. They'd be starved. 
No, that's what I don't know. I don't know if people are starving without it right now. I just don't know. I don't know if young people who are texting each other 24 hours a day are starving. I just simply don't know what they think, what they think about. I teach young students who want to write, so I know what they're thinking about, but they're a minority. They're a very minority of a minority. Or, or painting, you know, it's still going on. People are doing it, but in spite of everyone telling you that painting had died 25 years ago, 50 years ago, when it was immaterial, it didn't matter anymore. Of course it matters. And it's, 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 it's always going to be fresh and new in some ways in some person's hands. Anyway, I'm sorry, yes. Nina, I'm really No, I know, save me. <laughs> no, thank you. That's a very beautiful, important uh, observation and... Uh, I think that as long as we have people who are committed like you, people committed to literature and the arts and, and other mediums and communicating that to others, uh, yeah, it won't it's, it's, all, it's, all, it's always been a few people anyway. Yes. Really, it's always been a few yeah. people and, and done it and can't carry it on. Okay. But Lenina, please be in touch. Let me know if you need anything else. You want to send me whatever you want to do. I'm I'm available. I've been negligent. Forgive me. I've been overwhelmed. No, I understand completely. Uh, what I will do then, because part of it is that I then do, even though we've not um, met in person, I, I then do a portrait. I, I look at video, and we'll be oh, meeting I love anyway. That. I'd be so thrilled. So then that's yeah, posted. Uh, it, it's it's shared, uh, published in the the different participating magazines with that, and then with the. Um, uh, the, the the photos or the artworks that you would like to accompany me. Uh, you've okay. mentioned. Um, All right. I love yeah, let me, I'll sure. find out some. Let me know which one. Yeah, I, I, the Tintin. I know which one is Tintin. Roy made a cover mm -hmm. of a book jacket. Tintin in the world. I have one of the drawings for the front piece of the. Oh, that's a beautiful. That, I'd love to have, show you that. Sure. I'm share sure share what you like, and then we'll credit it if it's a, okay. part of a collection or whatever. And and also, I think yeah. I mean, there's some really dashing photographs of your. I don't want to say dashing, but very handsome photographs of yourself. A wonderful, uh, you know, whatever oh, well, you like to share and include or artworks. Um, okay. Then we can okay. include that. That's great. You let me know when you want to need all that stuff. Yeah. Sort of gather it. Together. Okay. Right? Thank you very much for your time. Please it's don't forget me. Be in touch and keep 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 the faith. Okay, Mia. I will. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Bye then. Merci, Mia. Merci. Okay. Bye. Okay. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producer on this podcast was Amanda Saletti. Assignment editor is Sorella Lark. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the production elements of our exhibition traveling to leading universities or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.